You know, we're in this uh, year, uh, summer in the scriptures, and many of you know that uh, one of our members, Arv Kretz, who's teaching a class on the parables right now, constructed, Pastor Jeff asked him to construct a schedule, a reading schedule, that takes us through some of the uh, movements of the scriptures. The idea is to read about God's story because this is God's story and the way that story is being woven uh, through humanity and actually written, new chapters written as, uh, as we move through history. And so we're reading different sections of scripture and this week, if you're following us, if you're following with us, going with us on this, by the way, you can get that schedule on hard copy in the back tables as you go by each of the doors. It's also available online on the website. I, I found it the other day on the Facebook page. It's, it's everywhere if you want to get that. If you're going to start reading now and you haven't been doing it before because they're daily readings, usually a couple chapters a day, uh, let me encourage you, don't go back and say, oh, I haven't been doing this and I need to get all caught up because we've been on this for two or three weeks now. Just start with that day and then go from there on and do the reading if you want to jump in. But this week, we just finished reading quite a bit from the Psalms. And actually, the, the schedule was for wisdom literature and the Psalms, different poetry, uh, poetic literature, and we've been reading from that. I'm going to take my message this morning primarily from some of those Psalms. But we've been starting each message during this series with a little bit of a background, give you some historical background from the text, when was it written, what time in history was this particular section of scripture happening. The Psalms are a little bit difficult to date because they're so vast. They spread across several centuries. Most scholars argue, or many scholars argue, that the earliest Psalms were probably written in the time of Joshua, the 14th century BC. And then the latest Psalms, the newest Psalms that we have, were probably written sometime in the third or fourth century. So Aristotle, Alexander the Great, uh, th those that's how, see how many centuries these things span? And that's just an educated guess. The Psalms don't give us a lot of help because they're not loaded with historical references that help us pinpoint what must have happened already for this Psalm to be written. And when they are, they're a little bit nebulous. So a reference to the temple. Well, okay, we know now that the temple was already built, but then we have to guess, well, which temple? Because there were a couple of different temples that were built and destroyed. And so trying to date these things, their origins, is a little bit challenging and difficult. But we'll pinpoint it down. You've got about 10 centuries to pick from you know, when these things. But as old as the 14th century B.C., as new as the 4th century B.C. And then, that's when they were, they were written, but then when did the collection of them come about? And when did certain psalms start being used in worship? Because the psalms are a prayer book they are a book of songs, most likely, but certainly at least poems, but probably a prayer book, a psalter, a prayer book and a collection of songs and worship songs. In fact, and they were usually sung. If not sung, they were read out loud together as part of worship. Uh, we were in staff planning our worship this week and talking about psalms that were put to music, at modern songs, and we were talking about, Linda was saying they had the 60s and and 70s, and the Jesus movement, and Jesus people, and all that. The, most of the songs we sang, I, was, I became a Christian in 1975. 
And most of the songs we sang back then, were, or many of them, were psalms that were put to modern, uh, modern music. They were a great way of memorizing, great ways of memorizing those psalms. So book of prayers usually set the music. This is, the psalms are the story of God as seen, as observed, and told by poets, by, by the worshipers who were watching that story unfold. And that's what we're reading when we look at the Psalms. We're seeing these reflections of the artists and their perception, their understanding, their experience of God as he's dipping into human history and his story is being recorded. And they're easy for us to identify with. I mean, most Christian memorial services have Psalms right at them. The Lord is my shepherd. They're so easy for us to identify with. You hear David, the psalmist David, and he didn't write all of them. Uh, we hear David or read David writing a psalm, confessing his sin, expressing his need for God. It's like if today, maybe he would take a harp and play it and sing it in the temple or even contemplatively. He might today take a guitar and just start playing some chords and singing truths that he understood about God and writing. And they're easy for us to identify with. When you hear David confessing his sin and saying, I have super blown it, God forgive me. Those things are easy for us to identify with. Psalms are easy for us to connect with, and maybe that's why so many of us, even folks who aren't followers of Christ, still have a favorite psalm. This is my favorite psalm because it was my grandmother's favorite psalm, or this is what she had underlined in the family Bible. Many of us have a favorite psalm. It's our go-to psalm that comforts us when we have needs. Excuse me for a second. But this week, as I was reading through the psalms that were marked out in our reading schedule, I was enjoying them. It was a really fun schedule. I was looking forward to prepping a sermon and being able to preach a sermon from the psalms. But something stood out to me this week that hadn't stood out to me before. I'm usually impressed by the nouns and the verbs of the psalms. The nouns like God and shepherd, verbs like forgive. This week though, what stood out to me was not the nouns, not the verbs, but interestingly enough, the prepositions. You know what a preposition is, right? Anywhere a mouse can go, or anywhere a rabbit can go, or what, in, under, through, toward. What, did I get it wrong? It's anywhere something, that's how I remembered it. I learned that in graduate school at like 300 bucks an hour, you know. <laughs> it's the prepositions that stood out to me. For instance, and here's the first point that I want to make, because these things, these prepositions are powerful, especially the way the psalmist display them and use them to describe the character and nature of God and his experience with God. For instance, Psalm 23, which most of us could recite. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23 reminds us that God is provider for us. Oh, thanks, Todd. Bless your heart. Thank you. God is provider for us. God is for us. And he's provider for us. Psalm 23. Look at how that's shown in that psalm. 
The Lord's my shepherd. Some translations will read, I shall not want. This translation reads, I lack nothing. And that doesn't mean uh, I literally have everything I've ever thought I wanted. The idea is that since the Lord is my shepherd, no one else is my, the Lord is my, the Lord is my shepherd. The fact is I really lack nothing. Because everything that's in his cupboard somewhere is mine for the taking and his for the giving to me when I need it. So the fact is, I lack nothing. Everything's, he's got it. He's got this covered. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along his, uh, in his paths. Even though I walk through the darkest day of my life, he's still with me. I don't have to fear anything. I might fear it, but I don't have to fear anything. And on and on and on. The psalmist is saying, God is provider for us. Not going to lack, he can provide. He doesn't have any limits. He gives rest, he gives food, he anoints my head with oil. The the text goes on to say, you know what that's a picture of? When you come in, it's a picture of, uh, you'd be anointed when you were a king, and there are different uses for that idea of anointing someone with olive oil. But there was also a use that was common in those days that when you would come as a guest, maybe a dinner guest, to somebody's house, If they stopped and your feet were washed and then your head was anointed with oil, they wouldn't let you walk too many steps past the threshold of their house before getting this precious perfumed oil and anointing your forehead and your head with it. That was a sign of this being an honored guest. It's it's pictured that you you come to the banquet and you either get to come in the side door or you come in the front door wearing a tuxedo and somebody has a big... stick in their, a staff in their hand and they go boom, boom, boom announcing the arrival of Mr. and Mrs. David Williams because they're an honored guest anointing my head with oil is kind of like that he anoints my I lack nothing I'm, I'm not just a dude that's at the dinner party I'm, in a, I'm a special guest in his household there's a seat reserved to me a place for me God provides for us. He takes care of his children. Now listen, I'm fully aware that there are seasons in life, days in our lives, where we begin to wonder if he hasn't forgotten Psalm 23. I understand that. But in the large and overarching scope of things, the Lord is as many, he's as much as saying this, when I lack you can start worrying about lack. But until I lack, you're not going to lack. He provides for us. Powerful preposition. Second point is taken from Psalm 103, which was also in our reading list this week. God's not only provider for us, but God... Boy, take this home, please, with you, this second point. God is forgiver of us. Psalm 103, beginning at verse 8 especially. Listen to this. The psalmist is drilling this home. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He doesn't say the Lord is occasionally compassionate and gracious, or the Lord wishes he could be compassionate and gracious. The Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. How many different ways do I need to say the same thing? The psalmist would say. And this is sung in worship. 
He's rehearsing what he's known to be true. As the story of God is being formed and unfolding in humankind. And as the psalmist is recognizing that this artist, this poet is recognizing, this deep feeling person is seeing how God is maneuvering and working. He recognizes this truth about God. He's forgiver of us. He will not always, it goes on, accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Man, I'm sure thankful for that. If he treated me the way I deserve to be treated, I wouldn't, there'd be nothing left of me. And many of you, all of us could say the same thing. Are you, yeah, I acknowledge that. He treated me in ways that were gracious, not what I deserved because he loves to forgive. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities for, check this out, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is for those who fear him. You see, the poet is trying to, he's struggling with the limitations of language. And so he says, let's see, what's the greatest difference I could, I could write about for people to understand the expanse of his love? Was it, It's as high as the heaven is from the earth, and the heavens go on forever and ever. Do you see the stars at night? I mean, you can't reach them, you can't count them. They're way out there. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. Start today walking east and tell me when you cross the line and are walking west. You're never going to do that because you're all, there's always something east of you. So you see, you see how the depth of God's forgiveness that the psalmist is trying to convey as a father has compassion on his children. I think today he might write, as a mother has compassion on her children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Nobody can think of, a, in a healthy situation, a more severe love than the love parents have for their children when everything's as it should be. Well, I was going to say maybe grandparents, but that's just a different love. It's not a more severe love. That's how much the Lord... He knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are simply dust. In other words, the psalmist is saying, you, since you know how we're formed, and of course you would know because you formed us, you understand we're human beings in a fallen world trying to do the best we can to find you, meet you, experience you, follow you, yield to you. You understand us. That doesn't mean you excuse our frailties, but you understand them. And since you understand them and you haven't forgotten them, it's like God is saying every day, I got you. I know how you're made. I get that. I don't approve of it. I don't uh, endorse it, but I get it. I get you, Greco, losing your temper. I get you being selfish. I get you being obsessive, compulsive, whatever it might be. Let's work on that. We'll keep working on that. But we don't have this God that slaps us across the face because of our frailties. We have a God who understands them and comes and puts his arm around our shoulders and says, okay, well, let's go from here. Let's start from here. Let's try from here. We're going to keep moving in the right direction. He understands our frailties. His love for us is so powerful, so overwhelming, so unexplainable that the best best that the very finest artist could do in the day that they wrote the Psalms was to say, I don't know, as far as the stars are from the earth, that's how big his love is. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he casts our sins away when we confess them to him and receive his forgiveness. It's dramatic. And it's all contained 
in a few verbs and a very powerful preposition. God is forgiver of us. Do you understand? Do you understand? He loves to forgive. He leans toward forgiveness. He, he, he's obsessed in a healthy way with pardoning, not with, with punishing. He forgives our sins. He's forgiver of us. Third point. Third preposition is from. God is to receive worship from us. And the psalmist knew that. And the psalmist expressed it. Look, for instance, at Psalm 100. A short psalm, five verses. The construct is interesting because it has three verses that basically call us to worship. And it devotes two verses to the reasons for the worship. Verses 1, 2, and 4 are challenges to worship, calls to worship. Verse 3 and verse 5 give us reasons for our expressions. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. I know it's not our gig to shout. We're more in covenant. We're a little more reserved. But the psalmist says shout. And the psalmist is implying if you, the deeper your understanding of what God has done for you and is doing for you, and the story he's writing for you, and the way he's using you in history to write his story, if you, I think when we get to heaven and see him face to face, there's going to be some shouting going on. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. And then there's verse 3, but it jumps to verse 4, and it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. All this challenge to worship because God is to receive worship from us. But then it gives reasons. Worship because you know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. And you notice the repetition of the possessive here. We're his. This is his. That's his. And so when you recognize that you're sort of living on rented land, and living really well there, you're pretty, pretty happy about having it available to you. It is he who made us. We are his. Pardon me. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So mom and dad, if you're wondering what's going to happen to your children after you're gone, well, one thing I can guarantee you, since he's faithful through all generations, is the same God that loves you is going to love them. And the same God that pursued you is going to pursue them. He's always going to be after them. They're always going to be the apple of his eye, every single one of your children, because he's faithful through all the generations and faithful to his own promises, generation after generation after generation. But what stands out here to me for as a good reason to praise him is because... The Lord, verse 5, the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. Questions people are asking these days really don't revolve so much anymore around uh, the issue of whether or not there is a God. Many people you talk to will grant you the idea that there's some sort of a deity governing all of this. Not everybody, but more and more. But the question that everybody is asking is, is he good? 
is he trustworthy? Not so much is there a God, but is he good? Or is he vindictive? I mean, is this earth uh, and humanity governed by and created by a good and loving God? Or is sort of karma in charge, whatever this force is, this presence is? Is it just uh, fate in some powerful form? The Bible and the psalmist wants to make it very clear. Oh, he is good. He is good in ways you don't even understand good. He redefines good. He defined it in the first place. Pure, unfettered, good. Need a little of that? God is good. Or I could say it this way. God is good. He's what good is. And all of that housed in a psalm that says worship, and here's why. Good, he is good. Love, he is love. He's, he's only capable of good and acting in the best interest of good. And when we throw bad at him, he returns good. We throw bad, and back in our mitt comes good from God. The psalmist says, so, since that's true, shout for joy, people. Because he's for you and he loves you. Think about that. Some deity does. It's not just that some deity loves us. Good loves us. Love loves us. Purity loves us. Truth loves us. Because God loves us. God is forgiver of us, and God is to receive worship from us because he's good and faithful, and we are his. Receive worship from us. Fourth point, not only is God to receive worship from us, but the psalmist understood that God is to be followed by us. If you're searching for a compass, God, because he loves us, comes and says, Here, here's the compass, follow me. And then that's a little bit nebulous, right? Then he said, well, here's my son, watch how he lived and follow him. Need a picture? Here he is. Live like he lived, value what he valued. Read about him, learn about him, and do what he did. God is to be followed by us. And from Psalm 73, and then we'll finish with a proverb, Proverbs 3, we see this. Psalm 73 is a beautiful psalm. It's a powerful, uh, emotive psalm. It's a psalm packed with pathos everywhere. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. And then this idea of leading. You hold me by my right hand. I'm a brute beast. I look like a marauder to you, and you still hold me by my right hand and you lead me. And then I love the way this psalm finishes. Whom have I in heaven but you anyway? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. That's a good goal. To get to the place where, uh, well, what Jesus taught, seek first the kingdom of God, let everything else fall into place. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing 
on earth. It's got nothing I long for except you. Very few of us could say that, but we're moving toward that, right? And earth has nothing I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So part of following him is creating this longing, exclusive longing for him. And then Proverbs, which I think is an actually clearer expression of this idea that God is to be followed by us. Where it says in 3, 5 through 7, an often quoted verse, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And I think that's two ways of saying the same thing. I might be wrong in that. This is an interpretive issue, interpretive question. But Trust in the Lord with all your heart instead of leaning on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. In other, way, in other words, in all your ways, submit to him, and then he's going to make your path straight. The text goes on. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn from or shun evil. This is what's going to bring health to your body, nourishment to your bones. This language we don't really use, but think of the, the deep, satisfying joy that can be described as something that brings health to your body, nourishment to your bones. That comes in seeing things through divine lenses and aligning yourself with them. God is to be followed by us. We're to be guided by God, desiring only to follow him. And then the tough part, leaning not on our own understanding, our own way of seeing things, but acknowledging him in all of our ways and practices, submitting to him in all the ways uh, we do things and do life. Now, that doesn't mean, if you read my little devotional this last week, uh, you, you're going to hear this again. That doesn't, this text is not an invitation to quit thinking. It's not a command to quit, to, to commit intellectual suicide. This is not the Bible instructing us to no longer challenge the things we think we heard it saying and saw it saying. In fact, our vision statement here at Marin Covenant is to engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ that's inspired and then what? Intelligent and involved. So inspired, we're looking for the Holy Spirit to fill us and guide us and lead us and, and reveal things to us. But intelligent is all about using our heads that God created, using our minds God created, valuing the education we have, looking at scripture and saying, wait a minute, I just read that. And that doesn't feel right to me. Why doesn't that feel right to me? I'm thinking through things. I'm listening to what's going on in culture. I was just talking with my neighbor yesterday and that thing scripture's teaching, that's perplexing. That's a good and healthy exercise. We use our heads, we use our minds, we reason, we reason with each other. This is not an invitation to quit thinking. What this is an invitation to do and a command to do is this. Submit all of that healthy, good, intellectual, rigorous struggle to the leadership of God. When all is said and done, Solomon, the great, writer, called the wisest man in the world by many people, the writer of many of the, of the Proverbs and, some of the, and much of the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes. And 
When it's all done, he said, I've spent my whole life struggling to figure everything out. I've thought and thought and thought. I've read and read and read. I've discussed and discussed and discussed. Here's my bottom line after a whole life of rigorous study. Fear God and follow his teachings. Solomon, you got five earned doctorates to figure that out? Follow God, know his teachings, and follow them. He is to be followed by us. And Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, think like crazy, discuss like crazy, question faithfully, be a faithful dissenter when you have to be. But when it's all done, submit yourself to what's clear in Scripture, including the challenge to love unconditionally, care about all of humanity. You don't have to agree. Agreement isn't the same as endorsement. I mean, learn these things. Be a thinking Christian and be led by God. Lean not and instead acknowledge. The power of the preposition. Preposition. 